ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We as journalists also, I think Joe Hockey is right, need to make sure we're bringing that really critical lens to say how is it possible that this person is not being named Mm. publicly and that it is not in the public interest to know. My government is concerned with the fight against inflation. Peter Dutton's concerned about fighting culture wars. And I think if the Prime Minister wants to renege on an election commitment he's taken to the last two elections, I think he should call an election. The housing system is cooked in this country. And I was praying that the Minister and the Government would finally wake up to themselves and do the right thing. Hi there, welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast and Q&A, joining you from Wurundjeri Country here in Melbourne. And I'm Fran Kelly, host of Saturday Extra on the Gadigal land of the Aora Nation in Sydney. And PK on Saturday, the Prime Minister celebrates his birthday at home in Sydney in Kirribilli with his son Nathan and partner Jody after spending the day in Melbourne in the outer suburban seat of Dunkley as voters cast their ballots in what's become or shaped up really as a pretty significant by-election. I mean, I guess they all have some significance, by-elections, but this one comes at a time when the government's been languishing the polls, yet the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, appears to be strengthening his support. So psychologically, at least, this Dunkley by-election on Saturday is important for the overall sense of how the two leaders are performing. And then, of course, there's the tax cuts. The opposition is urging us to see this by-election as a referendum on Labor's stage three tax cuts and the Prime Minister's broken promise, you know, that he wouldn't change them. But actually, if you drill down into the polling around the tax cuts, which passed the Parliament this week, I think it is pretty clear there is strong approval for the more generous tax cuts from Labor that go to more Australians. I think the question for Dunkley is whether that's a vote changer. And no one I've spoken to is prepared to answer that question right now, not to me anyway. So we're going to be talking about the Dunkley by-election with Anna Henderson, the chief political correspondent with SBS World News, and also talking to her about allegations of a traitor in our midst because she was at the rather explosive briefing by the ASIO boss Mike Burgess in Canberra this week. First PK, though, also this week, new gender pay gap data from the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. For the first time in Australia, all employers with a workforce of 100 or more are now required by law to publish the pay gap between male and female employees. Top line, it found the gender pay gap is still sitting at a whopping 19%. And in some industries, that pay gap is closer to 50%. Yeah, it was one of those reports that lands that becomes a genuine talking point in the community, (laughs) unlike some other reports that land and I don't think everyone engages with because it was real, right? There has been a lot of questions about how it works, so let's go to that to clarify. It takes the median male pay in the workforce and compares it to the median female pay in the organisation. So the pay gap is essentially the percentage between the two, like the difference between the two. CEOs are excluded from the data because obviously that would be significant skewings. And so in terms of like for like, it doesn't suggest that someone – who's a woman with the exact same job is being paid less. It's about who's got across an organisation the higher paid jobs. And it's used this methodology of the total remuneration across the company to highlight how higher paid positions within companies are still 
ultimately in in a you know a big way dominated towards men now airlines and banks were the two worst sectors the commonwealth banks gender pay gap was 29.8% and while all the airlines had really shocking results jetstar was the worst with 53.5% pay gap and then brands that actually target women like Lorna Jane and Sea Folly had big gender pay gaps too. Now, there was a kind of, I'm going to call it bipartisan, but then not bipartisan. So <laughs> bipartisan in so much as the former coalition government had agreed under Maurice Payne as Minister for Women to publish this data. Obviously, there's been a change of government by the time it's happened and it's all, you know, now it's happened under this government's watch. But someone did politicise all of this, and that was Nationals Senator Matt Canavan. He was not a fan. Here he is. It is a, a completely useless uh, report. And as you say, the, the, the headline figures of these reports are, are, are repeated breathlessly, as if yeah. they're gospel. It does perpetuate these ridiculous diverse and equity and inclusion policies in corporate workplaces, which do just breed resentment among especially young men. And I see it. Uh, with uh, with young people all around me uh, these days who are attracted to the poisonous ideologies of Andrew Tate and his ilk, yep. it is perpetuated by this nonsense. Wow. Nonsense, as if they're gospel. They are gospel. They're data, aren't they? <laughs> they're counted. Well, there has been some critique that, you know, that, that there's there's been a confusion about it's not comparing the same job. So my job compared to someone who has exactly the same job at the ABC, for instance, that it's not that comparison, that it's across the organisation. I think that has been reported heavily as as the explaining has been there. We just did it, right? It has, though, what he's what he's talking to has created some waves in the coalition. The deputy liberal leader and shadow minister for women, Susan Lee, was quickly came out and she told me on RM Breakfast she was basically in complete disagreement with Senator Canavan's views. Here she was. I'm taking this issue seriously. Matt Canavan is a National Party backbencher. I'm the most senior woman in the opposition. And, you know, you're asking me about the views of one man. I'm not going to take my focus off the underperforming corporates who are profiting off women and not promoting women. Wow. The underperforming corporates who aren't promoting women. So she had that view. Then there are others who have said... This is all about women's choices. Women don't want to work full time. Women are choosing not to go up um, the greasy pole. That's my language. I'm not quoting anyone. At the end of the day, my own view is that the government, if you listen to the language, and I listen very carefully to the language, has been interesting in its response. For instance, Katie Gallagher, who's the minister responsible, said this isn't about wanting to pay men less. <laughs> That's not the point. And that kind of goes to the canavan, what he's trying to perhaps whip up, right, or, or, or the sentiment he's talking to, that it's just about the facts and trying to get everyone to earn more and women to take on more senior roles. It's not about shaming. It's not about naming. It's not about... Um, saying men should be paid less. It's none of those things. It's about driving that change that we need to see in organisations to make sure uh, that women are getting a fair crack at opportunity um, and uh, that we're closing the gender pay gap over time. And that's the Minister for Women and Finance, Labor's Katie Gallagher. You could hear there, Fran, really clearly, you know, that she's she's aware of this feeling perhaps among men, some men, about that disenfranchised feeling that, you know, that, that while this gets highlighted, they're somehow missing out. And that's a real, that is a real sentiment in some part of the community. Yeah, it is a, a, a perhaps a growing 
group of young disgruntled men, as you say, who are moving further to the right and Labor's attuned to that. We all need to be attuned to that. But PK, I think, you know, nevertheless, despite Matt Canavan's comments there, you know, Susan Lee is also alert to something else, which is the issue that the Liberal Party has with women, right, in terms of their representation. They've got very low female representation in the federal parliament and they have an image problem. That was the finding of an internal post-election review for the Libs that they were failing to appeal to female voters. Their results at the last election very much reflected that. So Susan Lee doesn't want Matt Canavan messing up the work they're trying to do there. And the reality is the gender pay gap is real. Australia has one of the most gendered workforces in the developed world. Women dominating the lowest paid sectors like the care economy, childcare, aged care, nursing, teaching, uh, shop assistance within some of those chains you talked about, cabin crew within some of the airlines. Um, and the, the collection of this data is an important step, I think, in raising awareness of that and, and changing it. Yeah, I mean, it started an important conversation. This is up to these companies to try and address it now. And I think if, you, if you're if you transparent about it, uh, we know where the problems are, then it, the onus is on them, isn't it, to try and do something about it or they will continue to be named and people perhaps will know, you know, women will know that, that they're not taking it seriously. So it does kind of create an accountability should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. Anna Henderson, SBS World News Chief Political Correspondent, joins us in the party room. Welcome, Anna. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Anna, we're recording this on Thursday morning. Last night, a blockbuster speech from the ASIO boss Mike Burgess in his annual threat level address. Australia's spy boss revealed a former Australian politician, quote, sold out their country after being recruited by a foreign intelligence service. Here's Mike Burgess. This politician sold out their country, party, former colleagues to advance the interests of a foreign regime. At one point, the former politician even proposed bringing a prime minister's family member into the spy's orbit. Fortunately, that plot did not go ahead, but others did. Whew, quite a speech, Anna. What did you think when you heard that? What was the vibe in the room? I think people were pretty shocked at the detail that was provided and just the success of an operation to actually make contact with someone with that kind of power and influence, uh, allegedly, and to then go a step further and say not only was this a former politician allegedly doing this, but then there was an attempt to engage the family member of a prime minister. It really ramped up uh, just how deeply this group uh, was reportedly and um, according to ASIO able to access power. Mm. And I think that has been the thing that sent chills down the spines of not only people in the room who were um, journalists, but of course, a lot of politicians uh, do attend that uh, briefing as well, uh, just in terms of you know what the ramifications of these revelations would be. Okay. Now, no names though, Anna, and no yep. country named mm -hmm. either. And that has really angered a lot of former politicians particularly one particular former politician, former treasurer and also former Australian ambassador to the United States, Joe Hockey. It was quite an intervention. Here he is. He shouldn't go out there and besmirch everyone that serves in Parliament, past, present and future, talking about a traitor amongst the ranks. He shouldn't do that if he's not going to name that person. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. It's inconceivable here in the United States or the United Kingdom or most other countries, that the head of the intelligence agency would go out and make that statement 
without telling everyone who it was. Now that is, you know, he didn't hold back. A traitor no. in our ranks. That view, though, is a widely held view by mm. former politicians. Today, after I spoke to him on RM Breakfast, I have been inundated with texts and calls and messages from former politicians saying the same thing. And they're not all friends either, just saying, I agree with Joe. This does cause a big question mark around all of us. There has to be clarity. Well, firstly, I would say that it often transpires with these addresses that the spy agency will provide de-identified information as they do. And the Director General says he didn't want to name the particular country because a number of countries conduct espionage operations. He didn't think it was fair to single it out. And when he was asked about this particular former politician that he won't name, again, causing this distress among the other former politicians who have high profiles and don't think this is a fair way that he's operated. The um, Director General Mike Burgess said, we are a rule of law country. They're not doing it now. If we see them go active again, I can guarantee they'll get caught. Personally, I don't think they'll be stupid enough to repeat it. But... You know, Joe Hockey, in speaking this morning, was speaking from the lens of being in the US. And he also says, you know, he sees how the transparency exists in the US in terms of, say, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton and their engagements and how those are called out publicly. And he just can't wrap his head around from that place where he's living now that Australia would do this today in a way that doesn't actually really provide the detail that he thinks is absolutely required for transparency and for anyone else who engaged with this person. To, to know that they were engaging with someone who was operating for a foreign country. Whether or not this ends up with something happening on the floor of parliament in terms of underprivilege, uh, a naming. Yeah, can you uh, explain that to our listeners? I think it's mm. really important. Why could it happen on the floor of parliament in a way that doesn't cause legal cases? Well, the bar is obviously incredibly high to name outside of the parliament because there is no parliamentary privilege, that protection that someone has to stand up inside the parliament and, and to uh, name somebody uh, and have the sort of protection essentially against that being defamatory. But that doesn't mean that if we republish that information, we necessarily can be assured of absolute protection. It is still a challenging area for journalism. Uh, so, you know, we'll confront that if that happens in Parliament today. But certainly there is an extraordinarily blanket of protection that would surround that decision by a politician to take that step. Will be interesting to see if it happens because, you know, the, sh the shadow uh, Home Affairs Minister, James Patterson, this morning said he thinks he does know uh -huh. who this person is. He's not at this stage intending to name them. And that suggests that perhaps there are others on, on both sides of the parliament who've been briefed about this case. Uh, and it wasn't just about, you know, this particular former politician. I mean, there was extraordinary other detail around people from this group posing as members of a company, encouraging people with academic backgrounds and other officials and consultants to come to a conference uh, where, you know, people posed as uh, conference organisers, but were actually spies as well. And there was, a, you know, an extraordinary amount of detail and sophistication uh, in this process of trying to infiltrate and then recruit Australians in this way. We as journalists also, I think Joe Hockey is right, need to make sure we're, you know, bringing that really critical lens to say, 
how is it possible that this person is not being named mm. publicly and that it is not in the public interest to know? Yeah, because it does, as Joe Hockey said to you, PK, it does leave this person there out in circulation, people dealing with them and they don't know, and that could potentially be, mm-hmm. be an issue. Mm. So we'll see where this goes. Anna, this has all happened just days before the politician's perhaps main focus, or the leader's anyway, mm. which is a by-election on the weekend in the outer Melbourne seat of Dunkley. Now, by-elections come and go, as we saw with Liberals' historic loss in Aston last year. A lot was said then about what that might mean for the future of Peter Dutton. But, you know, if anything, he's travelling quite strongly right now. So how closely should we watch this result? And how does the timing within the electoral cycle make a difference to the importance of a by-election result? What do you think? The anticipation around this by-election and I think the importance that's being placed upon it is quite extraordinary because, you know, we don't we do have by-elections in Australia, but this one has just kind of gathered this you know, head of steam around it because we're coming off uh, the political break over the summer. It's a chance to actually do essentially a real-time electorate test uh, in a place that's in an you know outer, metro- outer metropolitan sort of suburban area to look at how you know different cohorts in a community are responding to the messaging of the major parties. So we know that the late Peter Murphy, the former member, she had a strong personal following and there was a backlash against Scott Morrison at the last election, but the margin was pretty strong. But then this week, you know, the margin was 6.3. This week, the Prime Minister was telling um, members of his party that, you know, on average in elections, the swing can be about seven, uh, which means, you know, he's he's kind of preparing the ground that it's going to be quite challenging to hold the seat. But then when you see the Prime Minister in question time, he seems incredibly buoyant this week. So I do wonder how um, confident behind the scenes Labor might be that they are going to get across the line. It'll be very challenging for them if they lose that seat. However, again, I mean, there's just this, this election is being poured over so deeply. Yes. Whether or not you can mm. read the tea leaves of the result as particularly related to either the Prime Minister or the Opposition Leader and their fortunes is still, you know, something that analysts will um, dissect on Sunday. But, yeah, there's a lot of bitten fingernails over this one, I think. <laughs> yeah, there, there are. That Labor was getting pretty nervous. So I know people who've been working, you know, on the ground of been out there, I've got a sort of sense of that place and mm. it's really tight. Um, they feel a little more confident because young people, you know, pre-polling is a big thing, obviously young people are coming out and they seem a little more open to the Labor message. So, but it's it's going to be close. The, clearly the, the Dunkley by-election is being posed as a bit of a test on stage three tax cuts. Those adjustments passed this week, giving the government some wind in its sails in some ways, Anna. But will it be framed around that? I mean, obviously there are other issues, but is that the problem or perhaps the benefit for Labor? Depends how you see it. They will get an answer this weekend as to whether or not the communication of the tax cut changes being a real net positive for people's back pockets worked or whether the communication from the opposition around, you know, broken promises and can you trust Labor really resonated, as well as these other, you know, elements of the campaign being run by parties and by other uh, elements sort of supporting parties, like, for example, the advance movement around really trying to, you know, stir up sort of fear and resentment around um, border protection and immigration, whether those things have resonated as well. You know, on the face of it, you would think Labor's had a, a huge uh, win. You know, there'll be 
able to ride into this weekend saying, you know, everyone's getting a better deal under us and we've, we've made the right changes to return more money to people who need it the most in, you know, a cost of living situation and the economies, you know, having some positive signs, inflation on a trajectory down potentially towards towards the target ban. This is all potentially good news, but we'll find out this weekend whether they've communicated that well enough. Yeah, I mean, what I'm hearing is that they're happy with how the tax cuts is is travelling, but they're really worried about that campaign from Advance, which is, for people who don't know, it's a, it's a right-wing lobby group. If you think of Get Up on the left, you've got Advance on the right. They've been spending up big on Dunkley. They've been taking out huge ads. They took out a full-page ad in the, in the Melbourne Herald Sun, uh, focusing on asylum seekers, you know, the High Court decision that forced Labor to let out all those long-term detainees and also fuel efficiency standards, they reckon. So they reckon it's boats and utes that's that's worrying them. They feel it's taking hold Mm -hmm. in in Dunkley sort of just at the wrong moment for them when they're sort of happy with how the the tax cuts measure is going. And the opposition leader is having what appears to be a a fairly successful time of it, just showing up at a lot of car dealerships and (laughs) raising these concerns about what, you know, Labor's fuel efficiency standards could mean. There is a buoyancy from the opposition around the reaction they're getting locally when they're out meeting people. And Peter Dutton, I think, said recently uh, that he's trying to shake as many hands as possible and people are starting to, you know, get the human side of him. I mean, there's a lot of hands to individually shake there, but, you know, he, he's trying to show a personable side of who he is and road test that for obviously a much bigger campaign in, you know, the year ahead. A lot of hands to shake, a good description. But he yeah. said something else that really, um, what did he say recently? That when he has haters, I think it was in an interview with the Saturday paper actually with Karen Middleton, when he has haters, it really fuels him. At the end of the day, the, this is obviously a test for both of them, but in terms of Peter Dutton's strategy for winning the next election, this is the seat that he needs to win. The demographics are ready to roll on this one, aren't they, for, for him and the pitch he's been, he's been making? And there's also, if, if it isn't a, a terrible result for him, I mean, if it's a terrible result for him, it's going to be really challenging for him to justify to his party why he should continue running the strategy for the opposition. If it's an okay result, and I think he's trying to manage expectations that they probably won't win, but they'll get an okay swing, then they have enough time to potentially recalibrate before they go to the polls. They can say, okay, what worked, what didn't. They can do some detailed focus grouping in the electorate and try and draw some interesting outcomes that would help them design you know, how they move forward. But it, it also just, I mean, they, they have been until now very much campaigning on what they disagree with about the government. At some point, we will have to see them bring forward some policy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, look, speaking of by-elections, there's going to be another one shortly in the seat of the former Prime Minister Scott Morrison, the southern Sydney seat of Cook. <laughs> this week, the former PM gave his farewell speech to Parliament. He said he'd given his all. He got quite emotional during it, Anna, reflecting on, on his legacy, but also speaking a lot about his family and his, his kids, and but also his colleagues and the challenges he sees in Australia's future. And he had some parting wisdom. We have contested fiercely in this place. I've had my wins and I've had my losses. But I wish you all well in your service in the national interest. Too often in this place, we confuse differences of policy with judgments about people's intent and motives. This is not good for our polity. We may disagree, but we need to honour the good intentions of all of us. 
So we've had, had his wins and had his losses. It was a toss-up between that grab and the whole Taylor Swift routine in the middle of the speech, Anna. But as Scott Morrison departs the parliament... Mm. What legacy does he leave behind? Well, a very clever strategy with the Taylor Swift reference because the international media, you know, his legacy internationally from that day and, you know, as a prime minister leaving the parliament was that he was hip with the kids and then he'd been to a Taylor Swift concert. So well done on the strategy there. But, you know, domestically, I think he very much sees himself as carrying the nation through the pandemic, standing up to China and being a bold force in Australia's national interest to stand up against regimes that he didn't agree with, as well as, you know, in his view, doing his best to ensure that there was a level of fairness during an incredibly tough time for Australia during the pandemic. Um, But the legacy that he leaves will always be completely clouded by his departure and the news after he departed that he had taken on those extra portfolios. And I don't think anyone in the Australian community is going to forget that. No. Mm. Now, Scott Morrison's departure does give Peter Dutton and the Liberal Party a better chance to define itself that era is on its way out, right? And recent polls show that Peter Dutton is perhaps starting to cut through. The Guardian Essential poll had Dutton at his highest approval rating ever, and that figure has been steadily rising over the last 12 months. All the polls show Labor's support, at least flatlining, and the PM's approval rating falling. Is there something going on here? Is there an underestimation of Peter Dutton? I do think that the way the opposition has played the last year has been very clever in terms of just chipping away at those messages, going back to those safe spaces to have conversations and do interviews with sort of certain parts of the media. I, I do think there is a potential for him to be underestimated as a leader, but at the same time, it feels like... Within the opposition, there is still a sense of the juries out amongst some, particularly the more moderate MPs and senators, just around whether it's the right approach. And that's why Dunkley becomes so important. Mm. And the reality of that Liberal Party room is there aren't many moderates in there. So that uh, gives Peter Dutton more of a free reign. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Fantastic, as always. Lovely to chat to you guys. Speak to you soon. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. The bells are ringing. That means it's time for our question time. This week's question comes from Priyanka, who says... Dear Fran and Pique, once in a while, against my better judgement, I watch question time in Parliament, and I am left with a deep sense of frustration that serious issues are being dealt with in a, such a juvenile manner. And yet, Parliament after Parliament operates like this, leading me to conclude that someone must be benefiting from it. Who is it? What is the point of these schoolyard antics? Mm, who is it, PK? <laughs> I mean, I'll just have a little shot first. Look, I agree with you, Priyanka. It is juvenile at times. It's gotten better. And I usually hate it when people say that. Oh, trust me, it's a lot better than it used to be. But there, there are stronger rules. And I also think our speakers have gotten better. And that has a lot to do with how effective it is. Personally, I think there is an important role for question time, for accountability. Ministers should have to present and and answer questions. And now that we've got this, you know, large crossbench there in the House of Reps in particular, you know, it gives those people a chance to stand up and, and ask questions. But you're right, there's not enough quality answers being given, but I would hate to see it disappear simply because it becomes a bit of a juvenile circus. I would just really like more and more public humiliation of the politicians who treat it like a circus, really. Mm. It's an interesting question about the how juvenile it is. Allegra Spender this week raised in the parliament 
during question time, her concerns that she was sick of Labor answering every question talking about the tax cuts mm. and how many people in every electorate were going to you know, benefit from the tax cuts that they have changed. Yeah, it was a great um, yeah. performance by her, I thought. Because her argument being obviously like, you've hammered this, we know this, we want to find out other answers. Now, you asked in your question, and I want to address that question because you know, it would be annoying if I didn't, right? You ask specifically who benefits. Well, I'll tell you why Labor thinks they benefit. They want to vomit, and I say it deliberately, <laughs> the vomit principle. They want to vomit the tax cut thing so many times because they figure just because we're bored in the parliament hearing about it, and I am, I'm tired of hearing how many people in every electorate are going to get a tax cut. Like I've heard that a few times now. I see what Allegra means. But they figure the more they say it, the more coverage it gets, the more it starts seeping into those electorates and the more political capital they get for it. That's their reason. Now, is that right? I think that there is some truth to that. Um, some of the tactics you see are all just about repeating, repeating, repeating lines, mocking your opposition so you can show you've got the better plan. And it goes on and it goes on. Mm. And Labor said they change things. I, I don't see a lot of evidence that there's been a huge amount of change, actually. Uh, might be, you know, more questions occasionally from some of the crossbench. Big deal. Uh, the way they answer questions is pretty much like the last government did. Yeah, I agree with that. Labor did promise change and it hasn't changed. And I just have to say that speaking to the Teals and other people who have come into the parliament, not from the major parties over the years, their absolute shock and dismay at question time and the behaviour in question time. The, um, the Teals were so shocked they quickly bound together and wrote a letter to the Speaker saying this has to change. Um, but, you know, that seems to have fallen on deaf ears. But, you know, they, these are people coming in from the real world, right, not from big party politics, and they can't believe it. They can't believe the behaviour. So, Priyanka, what you see is... Uh, accurate. <laughs> yes, what you see is is what you get. Um, I watch Question Time too, just to torture myself. Send your questions in because we love getting them. We're especially fond of voice notes and you can email them to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And you can follow us, The Party Room, on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And speaking of podcasts, PK, I just want to plug my latest podcast, if you will bear with me. It's called Yours Queerly. It's a podcast about queer friendship and connection, the importance of community for queer people in particular because, you know, people need safe places to be and, and that's what your community is. We, you know, released it this week in Mardi Gras this weekend, so it's perfect timing. But also I think perfect timing when there's – these are troubled times and the range of, of people we've spoken to, people like Courtney Act, Narelda Jacobs, Queen Kong, Josh Thomas – the Matildas, you know, it's a broad spread of people, but these are very positive conversations. And I think a bit of positivity is just what we need right now. So binge this six-part podcast series, people. It's called Yours Queerly. Thanks, yeah, PK, for the I, ad. I, I recommend you do. I already have. And my favourite episode, um, as I've declared on breakfast, you may have heard it before. If you've heard this twice, well, it means, you know, hurry up and go listen to it, is definitely the Matildas um, conversation, especially after that whopping win. We're recording this on a Thursday. What? legends. Michelle Heyman and Katrina Gorey are the two in the podcast and of course Michelle Heyman you know, scored four goals within no time in that game. It was brilliant. I know. And, and are they your favourite queers on that team? I mean, there are so many to choose from. <laughs> Alright Fran, see ya. See ya PK.